in and of itself. This highlights a problem in many churches which preach salvation, and I think in the minds of many Christians who value, rightly so, their salvation from sin and the promise, the guarantee of eternal life in Jesus' name. That problem is one which author Oz Guinness calls the social dimension of the Christian faith. What he means is this. Salvation is a little bit like the theory of being in right relationship with God and with your neighbor, but God's directive, Guinness says, has always been that the faith is practiced. It's the truth that is worked out in our lives, giving it the necessary, as he says, social dimension, and not merely professed, propounded, or proclaimed, or some other purely theoretical response. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need to be right with God. I'm not saying that salvation isn't a crucial and essential first step in that journey of being right with God. There is no relationship with God apart from the shed blood of Christ on the cross and that empty tomb and faith in his name. None. But this salvation is not the purpose of God for you or for the world. It's his means of redirecting you back towards the purpose for which he made you. We have a glimpse in this morning's scripture portion of this remarkable purpose in a summary fashion, why you were on the planet, why God made you. We have a glimpse in our scripture reading this morning of what Guinness called Christianity's social dimension. And so I hope from this morning's message you'll discover or be reminded how and why salvation is not the goal, the main goal of life, but rather a means, the means God uses to restore you to his original purpose for the world. This original purpose is, and it's my sermon title this morning, Your Creation Calling. Your Creation Calling. Now we could talk about this calling in a number of ways, but as I said, our scripture text summarizes or encapsulates your creation calling in two distinct areas of life marriage and work. So if you are an image bearer of God, it is absolutely critical, according to the scriptures, for your human happiness and for you to thrive in Christ, which is our mission statement as a church, that you understand exactly what God has in, in mind when instituting marriage and work, how he wants you to live in these two important areas. With that in mind, then, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and I'll read down to the end of the chapter. This is God's eternal and inspired word. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, 
and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your holy word and for making it clear in your word, our creation calling here, which is emphasizing marriage and labor. And so I pray that as, as your servant preaches and teaches these truths and of all of us hear from you about this passage of scripture, that you would be honored and glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So creation calling, I have three points. First of all, I want you to see that in our passage, the character of your creation calling is regal or royal. The theme of royalty is all through our text, but in particular, it shows up with this word rule and dominion. Notice in Genesis 1.26, it says, let them have dominion, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Again, it's repeated over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This rulership, this dominion notion is simply God calling forth out of man his image bearer, the very thing that he himself is doing. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. God hovered over the surface of the waters, the primordial chaos of, of the dark and the deeps in Genesis 1-2. And in that creation, in that over-hovering in the, in the earliest days of, of our world, God ruled and God had dominion. Thus man, Adam, made in the image of God, made male and female, is called on to do something very similar as his image bearer. Man and woman are also to rule. This ruling and reigning by Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, is to be done as an image bearer of the king. This is royal language. Dominion is the work of kings and queens. It's the language of lordship. But if it's lordship, it's not to be oppression like we see amongst sinful fallen human beings, squashing one another and tyrannizing one another and and harming one another. This is lordship like the divine lord. It's intended to be a gentle lordship, not a selfish rulership. Now to appreciate this, the historical background here might be helpful. Moses, who's inscripturating this creation account around the time of the Egyptian bondage when God's people were in Egypt and were incidentally tempted to go after the Egyptian gods, intentionally, I believe, describes, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the creation of the world in terms that would have provoked the imaginations of the Israelites in the midst of an Egyptian empire. You see, in the pagan world, and certainly amongst the Egyptians, an image of God was the king. And the king had all authority to do and to act in the name of his God. And so for the Israelites to read that 
Every single woman and man is made in the image of God and is endowed with the royal rule and authority would be mind-blowing and radical. This is the good news from Genesis. But there's also a warning. If you are an image-bearer of the Creator, how could you possibly bow down to another created thing? If the Creator Himself is the Creator of the world and He has made you His image-bearer, how could you prostrate yourself before a totem of wood or stone? Or if it's not a physical image, some other created idol like fame or sex or money. When you bear the image of the one who made all of these things for your good and for his glory. But not only do we see royal rule here, we also see a royal blessing. Look at my text in verse 28. It says, and God blessed them. Don't miss that brief statement. Not only does God endow them or call them or summon them to a royal rule, he, he blesses them, He gives them and equips them in the blessing of God everything they need in order to carry out this rule. God doesn't just summon you or call you to do work in His name. He blesses you in the process. Paul will write in the New Testament, He has given us everything we need for life and godliness, the blessing God blessed them, and God speaks to them in verse 28. Before he tells them one word about their creation calling, he endows them with the blessing they need in order to fulfill it. My Father taught me all that I, have, all that I need, I already have from God. In this sense, all that you need to carry out your creation calling in these two areas of marriage and labor, you already have by the blessing of God. True, he rules, and as an image bearer, you must rule. True, he has dominion over his creation, and therefore, as his image bearer, men and women, you too must take dominion in the creation. But there is no creation calling without the creator's blessing. The royal character, then, of the work that you do on behalf of the king isn't just by virtue of your own efforts. Even in the, in the, in the world of Eden, before sin entered the world, Adam had to be endowed with the blessing of God in order to do the blessing of God, do the work of God. You must be equipped, you must be enabled, you must be blessed to carry out your creation calling. That's its royal character. Second, notice, not only does your creation calling have a royal character, it has a perfect pattern. It has a perfect pattern. How you are to live in God's creation, this is your calling. What you are to do, this has a perfect pattern. And there's two crucial activities that are described with four terms that are parallel in our text. Notice verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. That's the first pair. And then the second pair is fill the earth and subdue it. And these two pairs of terms, these two, actually four, four terms describe two primary areas of human existence. Be fruitful and multiply are two actions, two verbs that point to, to human marriage. And fill the earth and subdue it are two actions that point to human labor or to work. Let's look at each of these in sequence. Notice that the creation calling given to you by God, given to man, made in the image of God, requires that you replicate God's image through marriage between a man 
and a woman. The text says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now we're going to get a more in-depth study in marriage later on in this series this fall in creation. But for now, it's important that you see in the context of marriage, which is more fully described in Genesis chapter 2, mankind, male and female, is to multiply as image bearers, new image bearers of God. By way of sexual reproduction, sexual intercourse, male and female in marriage, Adam and Eve, are to reproduce image bearers of God. It's not just making babies. It's making new kings and queens who bear the image of God. This is confirmed in the wider context of our passage. If you could turn one page over in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, take a look at this. In Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3, Moses recapitulates some of these very same instructions that he gives in Genesis 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam, Moses writes. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, and he named them man, Adam, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. In this passage, Adam is made in the image of God. He bears a son named Seth, who the Bible tells us is made in the image of Adam. You can see then the repetition and the rearticulation of the creation calling in Genesis 1 after the fall in Genesis chapter 5. This proves the command to be fruitful and multiply means making more image bearers. So Seth was in the image of Adam, and Adam was in the image of God, and Adam was continuing his creation calling through sexual reproduction. Genesis 2, 23 and 24 proves that this sexual intercourse is to take place in the context of marriage, which we'll study in a few weeks. So the pattern for all humanity is to reproduce by sex image bearers in the context of marriage. It needs to be absolutely clear that this is the ordinary pattern for all of the human race. Every Adam that exists, a male and a female Adam, the ordinary pattern for all mankind is to find their creation calling to be fruitful and multiply, replicating image bearers of God in the world. That's the picture of Scripture. Making children new image bearers of God within the context of marriage is the first crucial action you must take in fulfilling your creation calling. And notice it comes with the blessing of God. God blessed them. And so we recognize in this statement the blessing of God precedes any fruitfulness in marriage as to procreation of children. And by the way, that word procreation itself is evocative. He is the creator and we are the procreators. He is the origin of all life, and then we procreate, we make new life by virtue of the life that he has given to us. Multiplication of image bearers is not the only pattern we see in this text. We also see that your creation calling has another perfect pattern, and it's related to labor or work. 
Verse 28 again says this, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's the first pair of actions. And then the second pair, which relate to work, are fill the earth and subdue it. Adam and Eve, the first members of the human race, are situated in a, in a place on the planet called Eden. Think of it as a town or a zip code. And in this area, in this place called Eden, there is a garden situated centrally in this region of Eden. And based on uh, a study of the whole scriptures, Eden is probably located on a mountain. And so the Garden of Eden is located in this place called Eden, centrally on this mountain. This area, this garden, this perfect paradise, as it's sometimes called, the first humans are called to take what is there and to replicate it throughout the entire earth. So in Genesis 1.28, it says, fill the earth and subdue it. It implies, necessarily implies, that what is true of the place where Adam and Eve find themselves is not true everywhere. Now, there's no sin in the world, but in my understanding, as I've thought about it, it's something like a global version, post-creation week, of what we find in Genesis 1-2. The earth is in a watery depths of darkness and it is formless and void or empty and adam and eve are to fill this void they're to fill it as the first two humans they're to fill it with image bearers who honor god with their ruling and their reigning as representatives of the creator but they're also to fill it with all kinds of other things as well I imagine this scenario something like this. Eden is like heaven, and the rest of the world is like the unformed, dark, watery depths of Genesis 1-2. And as God hovers over those primordial but sinless waters, unformed, and over the course of six 24-hour days, fills this watery depths of darkness with the glorious, ordered, majestic, immensely variegated, beautiful creation that is the creation week. Just as he has done that, God is shown as a laborer filling the world with the, with the goodness of the products of his creativity. So Adam and Eve are to do the same, to take the glory of Eden, tending, caring for the garden, yes, but extending that garden glory throughout not just the whole planet, I would say, but the entire universe. Filling the earth and subduing it. Eden, then, is a pattern of the whole world. It's a prototype of the work that God wants to see replicated for everywhere and for all times. And it isn't just making other image bearers. This is labor specifically. Here's how theologian John Murray explains it. Subduing the earth means harnessing and utilizing the earth's resources and forces, expending thought and skill and energy in bringing the earth and all of its glorious creation under the control of man so that they will be channeled for the end for which they were created and which they will not accomplish without the investment of energy by man and by woman. 
So it's as if the, the gold and the waters and all of the, the minerals and all of the elements and all of the created vegetation and all of the plant life are sitting like, like paints in their pots. And man is to take those paints and, to, and with, with the, in partnership with woman is to create a beautiful portrait of order and glory, as it were, improving even upon the perfection of God's creation as his image bearers. Utilizing their creative abilities, their thought, their imaginations, their hard work, their effort, and making even more glorious the glory that God has made. So we've seen then its royal character, we've seen its perfect pattern, both in marriage and in work. Finally, I want you to recognize that your creation calling has a heavenly purpose. By heavenly, I mean this. Had Adam finished his work of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and subduing it, all the world would have been like Eden. It would have truly been a heaven on earth. To return to Os Guinness's phrase, the social dimension of Adam's faith would have been an entire planet, even an entire cosmos that resembles Eden, fruitful and glorious, creatively invested in by man, the image bearer of God. And this would have required a labor. This would have expended energy. It would have taken work. It would also have required marriage and children because to do this vast work across the entire created universe is going to require more than Adam and Eve. It's going to require children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and even thousands of generations of human beings, image bearers of God, who carry on the work of creatively drawing forth from God's beautiful world its original and intended purpose, all to the glory of God. So it's important to recognize that labor and work is part of your creation calling. The heavenly purpose is that you would work, that you work in God's world to bring glory to God through your work, by your work. This labor is intended, as I've already mentioned, to be a partnership between the man and the woman. The husband and the wife are in partnership for this created labor. This, by the way, should do away with the myth that women don't work or shouldn't work. On the contrary, according to God's heavenly purposes for the world, there is no such thing as a woman who is an image bearer of God not fulfilling her creation calling. The question is rather, that we should ask is rather this, is she working in a way and according to the pattern which God intended? And I'll return to this in the conclusion of my sermon this morning. But before I do, I want to address a common concern that I hear when I preach on topics such as this morning's topic, your creation calling. The objection that I sometimes hear comes from people who are unmarried or people who were formerly married, that they get tired of hearing sermons in church about marriage. I get it. At the outset, the way we preachers sometimes handle marriage from the pulpit is extremely alienating to people who are unmarried. It can feel sometimes more like an in-club of a marriage seminar rather than the gospel of our salvation preached from the Word of God. Now, every sermon should be about the glory of God and the calling of man in the world, not some marriage seminar of five, tri- five 
tricks to a healthy marriage or tips. But in this morning's text, I need to emphasize specifically that the message of the text is that the ordinary path for 99% of the population is marriage between a man and a woman. That's the message. So I can't avoid that message because it makes some of us uncomfortable or because you're hearing it yet again, perhaps, or you're tired or frustrated, or you want to be married and aren't, or you were married and are no longer. The fact that in the West and in America today there's a decline in marriage for a number of reasons that I can't get into this morning is no reason not to preach the Bible, which before us this morning is God's creative, perfect pattern for the vast majority of the human species, Christian marriage. God intends humanity to flourish, not alone, but in marriage between a husband and a wife. That's the plan. Now, if that isn't working for you or you're ill-fitted to that plan for any number of reasons, you have my sympathy and my patience and my prayers. You are not judged. You are welcome. But we need to hear it. All of us need to hear it. The fact that marriage is on decline in, the, in America is due for many, many sinful reasons, I believe. This is not as it should be, and it may not even be your fault, so to speak. Almost everyone is called to marriage. I said almost. Some are not. But this is the generic pattern of a man and woman partnership, the not alone partnership. And I believe part of what's happening is perhaps that we have shied away from preaching this truth the way that the scriptures present it. You were called to flourish as a human being in a together relationship with a man and a woman. Most of you are. Well, before I conclude this morning, I want to point out a couple of implications of what we've seen in our passage. First of all, if you were married, you need to give your marriage some focused attention. And I'm speaking especially to the men because some, something like 75% of books on marriage are bought by women. Men, this is not right. Your marriage needs focused attention by you. Living together as two sinful people isn't normal. It's not natural. In fact, the book tells us in a couple of chapters that it's extremely difficult. It's fraught with peril, and everything about it, and I know this sounds like I'm contradicting myself, but it's, it's, the, it's the way of our sinful world, everything about marriage is hard. It's an uphill battle. But remember, God has blessed you, brothers. His blessing precedes the institution of marriage. And in Christ, He has blessed you again, not just as your creator, but as your redeemer, as your savior. And your marriage needs focused attention. You need to be the one that buys the book. You need to be the one that suggests we pray. You need to be the one that goes for counseling. You need to be the one that reaches out to the pastor. You need to be the one that, that, that repents of your sin. You, it needs to be you. You need to ask, what can we do to make this better? And wives, do not take advantage of your husband's meager on life support efforts be kind to the brother be patient with him 
recognize his spirit-sent humble efforts to, to apply this morning's message. He wants to give his marriage focused attention. Is there something, ladies, in your life that is making it difficult for your husband to do what God has called him to do, which is to create a home and a relationship in which men and women flourish together in a working partnership in fulfilling your creation calling? If you were to interview someone who has been divorced, I assure you that they would express to you their deep regret for not listening to this advice earlier on and giving their marriage the focused attention that it needed. Last year, last decade, 30 years ago, when they were dating, when they were single and thinking about marriage, when things hit a crisis level, it becomes almost impossible to do what's needed, but don't lose hope. If you're in a full-blown marriage crisis, God can work miracles. Pray for help, ask for help, and watch and see what the Lord does. I think a second important implication from this morning's message is this. Your spouse is your labor partner, and I'm not just talking about family-owned businesses. There's nothing in the Bible that says that one of the spouses doesn't have to have to work. However, the culture is selling you a lie if you've fallen into the notion that work requires a paycheck. That's the first thing you need to hear. Now, paychecks are nice, but human labor, the calling, isn't contingent upon getting a paycheck from a corporate employer. There is some truth in the slogan, equal pay for equal work, but it misses the fact that husbands and wives while absolutely equal in value, are absolutely not equal in their creation callings. They are different, as different as their naked bodies would show you. And their bodies are, are a billboard. They're pointing the way to the kinds of work that they are called to do. That seems basic, anatomically basic. But we live in a society where the, the most basic truths are, are being eradicated and ignored and dismissed over and over again. I believe in general, because of who God made the husband to be, he is called to be the primary laborer in the marriage partnership. I believe that's right in this text. Primary laborer. And there are seasons in any marriage partnership where one or the other may work more than one or the other. But the primary laborer, which I believe generally means the primary breadwinner, is the one who has the hardest job, the most demanding job, the one that requires the most strength, the most endurance, and who puts up with the most you-know-what. We're made for this, men. It's what we're called to do. The woman, by contrast, is ordinarily called to be the primary life giver in the relationship. Nurturer, relater, carer, one who cares. She is specifically called to be a helper later on in Genesis 2 to her husband. That puts her role in an auxiliary position. She's more spoke than axle or hub. She's support crew, not lead. That's her role. 
Now, you might be the one exception to this general rule, or you might be in a season of your marriage where this exception predominates, and I bless you for that. This is not me lambasting your life choices or your career choices, but God's best plan is for man to work and for his wife to be his co-worker, partner, support, and help. That's the plan. Now, if we live in a two-income society where housing prices are off the market, you can talk to me about that all day long. We need to think about this. We need to work on these things. A third implication, I think, before I conclude is this. The command to multiply image bearers means having children. So a Chinese policy of one child is fundamentally violating the scriptures. Full stop. Likewise, an American notion that if I have a boy and a girl because my wife wanted a girl and I wanted a boy, I need my son. If that's how you describe fruitfulness and that alone, that is also a violation of Scripture's plan and pattern for multiplication. Now, I'm not saying that if you have two children and only two children that that's wrong per se. What is your mindset? What is your attitude? Are you viewing God's plan and pattern for marriage from the scriptural point of view or from an economic point of view? Well, we have a problem right there. Do you just not see yourself as a good mom? We have a problem right there. Our calling is to start with God's plan and to see how I can fit into God's pattern. And yes, every man and woman's quiver here is going to be of a different size. I recognize that. Some will adopt and some will have children. I recognize this. But hear the preacher say God's plan is for an abundance, a fruitful abundance of children. That's the plan. Image bearers who fear God, love their neighbor, and do God's work in the world. May he come quickly. Amen. That's his plan. So I want to encourage you to be faithful to this text and multiply image bearers in the name of God. How many kids should I have, Pastor? Pray about it. One more. How about that? That's how we got to six, by the way. The math was starting to get difficult. One interesting implication of having a large family or a large family maybe by modern terms is that it's almost impossible to outsource the care of three, four, five, six children. And so that necessarily imposes a kind of restriction on the character of the woman's labor in a marriage partnership. So it's, it's interesting to me, and I find, it, I find it sort of divinely coincidental that the calling, the prima facie calling of a woman and the prima facie calling of man and woman in multiplying image bearers, when you give yourself to both of those callings, they tend to work together. How like our Lord. How like our God. And by the way, I will, I will mention there is a glorious gift when we adopt children and add them to our family. And we, we take an, a pre-existing image bearer 
who knows nothing of God, for instance, and retrain and reform this, this beautiful young child into a, a glorious reflection of Christ in our homes. But this is not the work for everyone. This is difficult, uphill labor. And it's, it's fraught with peril. So do not blithely assume that adopting children is a way that you're going to fulfill this creation mandate. There's a reason that the normal pathway is by procreation between a husband and a wife. It's God's best plan. I'm encouraging adoption, but, but be careful, beware. In conclusion this morning, your creation calling as image bearers is to concentrate on being faithful and fruitful in marriage and in labor. But I cannot end this morning's sermon without acknowledging that Adam utterly failed with his wife Eve to fulfill their creation calling. Having been made in the glorious image of God, he rebelled against God's simple command, given every advantage, and ill-suited himself, disqualified himself from doing the very thing that God had blessed him to do. Remember in the beginning I said salvation is not the point or the goal, but the means to the goal. This is where it really becomes important. Like Adam, you have substantially lost the image of God. You can still get married, you can still hold down a job, and possibly be quite effective, but until you are restored to the original and even improved and glorified image, you will not be living in the world the way God wants you to live. And you will never enter paradise the heavenly Eden which awaits all of God's people. It will remain forever blocked by the angelic swords. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. In Christ, you are restored to the image of God. That which was not only your original creation, but you're elevated. You're perfected. You're situated in a place that Adam himself never achieved because Christ is the new image bearer who perfectly kept the commandments of God in your place so that his shed blood on the cross and his empty tomb is rising from the dead and breaking the chains of death is your victory in the garden at the tree. And you are now blessed in Christ to fulfill whatever he has given you in terms of marriage and labor in this world. Listen to Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might preeminent. For through him God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What love! the Father has for his fallen children, that he should send his Son to restore us to our creation calling. Jesus brings salvation to fallen humanity, perfectly completing humanity's twofold function of multiplication, marriage, and work. He makes the church his bride, Ephesians 5. He fills the earth with his spiritual children, Isaiah 53 and Matthew 12. John 1. He builds up a new humanity in himself, 
a race of righteous people, Romans 5.19. He blesses his disciples and gives them the spirit of life, John chapter 20. And in Christ, he is bringing everything under his and our feet so that the entire earth and all the promises of God belong to us in Christ. And all of God's promises are to you, yes and amen, in Christ. So let us pray that God will renew each of us who is hearing this message this morning in the beautiful image of Christ so that we might accomplish his purposes in the world and our creation calling. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for being such a a marvelous Savior at such cost to yourself, living a perfect life that we could never live, submitting to all the humiliations and struggles and trials and hardships of life in this sinful world that you didn't make, that we made. Even submitting to the very wrath of God which we deserved. Thank you, Lord, for being such a wonderful savior, such such a captain of our salvation, such an Adam for us. And thank you that this work that you have done is not the goal, but it's an essential means to the goal of being restored to our purpose in the world. And I know that some of my hearers this morning struggle with the sense of calling, sense of identity. Some struggle with a desire for marriage. Some, some have a gift of singleness and struggle in how to integrate themselves with this beautiful gift into the fellowship of God's people and into a world which often looks on them with scorn. Some struggle, Lord, with the loss of a spouse or with the loss of a job or with the breakup of a marriage or a relationship, whatever it may be look with clear eyes at the Savior's Spirit on our creation calling this morning. May you move us ever closer until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.